This passage that we're going to look at in chapter 4, verses 3 through 6, comes in the section on chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, and it's got to do with unity in the church. Now, any time when we begin to teach about unity, um, if you're here for the first time, or you're probably thinking, why are we talking about unity? It's just because it happens to be a passage that comes right in our text. You know, we are not trying to invent the wheel here, trying to make sense of something. It also doesn't mean that there is no unity. Uh, unity is something that I'll see in this church, uh, the camaraderie, the love that exists between fellow believers and fellow members. It's a joy uh, to actually come to church and see that uh, in the life of the church. Uh, I'm so touched and I'm so humbled uh, by the, the unity that I see in this church. So thank you for being such a loving church. In fact, that's something that people testify to all the time when I ask them, so what brings you here? What did you notice? Your people are so loving. And that's, that brings joy to my heart, just to hear that, uh, that you guys go out of your way to welcome people and you love one another and you are here to serve one another. So thank you. Thank you for that. So here in this passage, as we look at chapter 4, Verses 3 through 6, the title it, Preserving the Unity. The first part was last week. We went through verses 1 and 2. And this week it's going to be verses 3 through 6. Two people were chatting. One said to the other, You know, sometimes I think that everyone in the world is a bit off. Except for me and you. And sometimes I wonder about you. Now, you may smile at the story because we recognize ourselves in it. We are all prone to think. And I see things clearly and everyone else is a bit off. I wonder how many people can be so blind as to not see things my way. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul has laid the foundation to what he's going to build on and chapters 4, 5, and 6. Last week, when we looked at chapter 4, verse 1, we looked at the word, therefore. It's a conjunction. Everything that we are going to see in chapters 4, 5, and 6 is undergirded by what Paul has said in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 is the doctrine and chapters 4, 5, and 6 is the application of that doctrine. Not that we are going to look for doctrine and application, but the principle that flows out of this is, anytime you and I want to apply something, we need to know why we do what we do. If we don't know why we do what we do, then it could become moralistic. Right here, we do what we do because of who we are in Christ Jesus. And because of who we are in Christ Jesus, now let's act the way we are. We don't act the way we are in order to be in Christ. We are in Christ, and so we become or we act the way we, we do what we have to do. The life we are to live should always come from the application of doctrines. The passage in Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 6, is, as we said, the part of a larger context. 1 through 16. And when you look at verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, we see four headings. 
First, we must understand the importance of unity. Verse 1, and we looked at it last week. Second, we must cultivate the qualities that preserve unity. It's found in verse 2. Again, we looked at it last week. Today, we're going to look at the two headings, number 3 and 4. The third heading being, we must strive to preserve unity. Verse 3. And fourth, we must be founded on the biblical basis for unity. Verses 4, 5, and 6. In the first heading, we saw that we must understand the importance of unity. Uh, to understand the importance of unity, we must be able to understand the significance of our calling. We are effectually called out of darkness into the light. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 reads, But you were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So he says we were a chosen race. And this is what Romans chapter 8, verses 28, 29, 30 talks about. It says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he, we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we were chosen, we were called, and as we were called, we were justified, and as he justified, he also glorified. Before we were effectively called, we were spiritually blind. We were spiritually dead, and we were morally bankrupt. But after we are saved, we are transformed. And with the resurrection power that is available to us, the power that raised Christ from the dead, we have the ability to live out that transformed life. So it's only by understanding the implication of our calling can we understand the importance of our calling. So only a true, genuine believer is able to understand true unity and has the power to live out that true unity. So yes, we must understand the importance of our unity. Why should we be united? That was the first heading. And we looked under that heading that unity is important to Christ. And we saw that in John chapter 17, verse 11 and 21 through 23. We said that, he, as, he, as we read that verse, he said, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me. All believers are joined to the Lord in one spirit with him. And so all believers are in unity with each other. That's what we see there. We also saw that Paul was in prison because he preached unity. He preached that the Jew and the Gentile are now becoming one new man into this one new body, the church. And the Judaizers did not like that and he was sent to prison. We also saw that the unity in the body reveals the authenticity of the gospel. It makes the gospel authentic. John chapter 13, 
Verse 35, we read, by, all, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Francis Schaeffer wrote, We cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, and that Christianity is true, unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. So it makes the gospel authentic. Next, we looked at verse 2, which was our second heading, and that is, let us cultivate the qualities that preserve unity. It means we must, serve with one, we must serve one another with one mind. A mind that is humble, gentle, patient, forbearing in love. There must be mutual care for one another. Now, now, serving in unity doesn't mean that you serve alone. You serve together. John Calvin, he writes, and listen to this, it says, Let us go together and encourage each other. That means as you serve in the church, you're not serving alone. You go together and you work with one another. Then he continues, And let the one who drags his feet and has infirmities in him, be waited for by those that go more swiftly and carried also if need be, so that we may all be drawn to God. So he's saying that there will be people who are slow. There will be people who have infirmities or blemishes or faults. And what we must do is we must wait on those and carry them if need be, so that we may all be drawn to God. That means we all work together with one another in spite of our faults and our blemishes and our slowness or our swiftness. This means we are to be patient and long-suffering, caring, humble, and gentle with those who may not work like us or look like us or act like us. We need to wait on them. We are to be patient with them. So, If we are doing some activity together and there are some people who are really slow in that, John Calvin says, let's come alongside them and carry them. If they have faults, let's come alongside them, help them. You know, beloved, everyone has some weakness and infirmities. And, and if you were to closely scrutinize every man, you will find faults, blemishes, both great and small. Do you agree? Yes. Everyone has some form of, some kind of blemish, faults. But what you do with these faults and blemishes is extremely important. 
I mean, if you put them under a microscope, what will happen? They'll appear magnified. And what would happen if there is a slight conflict or a little bit of misunderstanding? John Calvin continues. He says, if there is any fire of strife that is kindled, he says, listen to this. Your faults, the faults and blemishes of the other person will become so magnified that every man would have his enemies drowned in the bottom of hell. He will spare no stone unturned in bringing that person down to the bottom of hell. And so it's important how we respond to faults and blemishes. If we give rein to our emotions, we will descend to being hurtful. Isn't that true? The more you think about it, the more you are hurt. We will use unkind, hurtful words because there is grudge in our heart. We'll be vicious to this man or to that man and result in a party spirit. But, according to verse 2, if we put on the qualities that preserve unity, and I say again, preserve unity, because you and I cannot create unity, we can only preserve unity. If we put on the characteristics that's mentioned in verse 2, we'll find ourselves humble, gentle, meek, patient, long-suffering, forbearing in love. And when we do this, Listen, what will happen? We'll be sweet-tempered and considerate of others, and as a result, the church will be unified. Now, we can apply this into our families as well, right? We can use our response to our spouses. If you take the faults and blemishes of your spouses and, and brood over them, you magnify them, depending on how powerful your microscope is. It can go anywhere from 10 times to 300 times. And the more you magnify them, a little strife and a little conflict, all of a sudden you explode like Vesuvius. True? First Corinthians chapter 13 Verse 4, and you don't have to return there, and I'll tell you what that is all about. According to 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love has three qualities. Love is patient and kind, meaning it is gentle and kind-hearted. Love does not envy or boast, meaning it is lowly and meek. It is not arrogant meaning it is patient and endures all things. So let's do a little heart examination here. Think of people with whom you have been upset or angry or irritated. And if you're married, you don't have to go far. It could be your spouse. Something happened lately. And you are spewing venom 
in your heart. Do you know why you're doing this? Maybe because you lost your love for that person. Maybe because you're not being gentle and kind-hearted to them. Maybe you're not lowly and meek. Maybe you're being impatient with them. Let us learn to be patient, not only when wrong is done to us, but also when we see that our brothers and sisters are weak and feeble, and they are not as mature as you in the Word of God, let's come alongside them and help them. Isn't this what God wants us to do? I mean, isn't this what God does to you as well in your sanctification? Are you Mr. Perfect or Mrs. Perfect the moment you come to faith in Christ Jesus? God works on your sanctification. It's a progressive sanctification. He takes you every day to make you more and more like Him. He doesn't give up on you. And so it's the same thing that we need to do with one another. There are some people in our congregation that are not as mature in the faith. They're believers. But for whatever reason, they are not either studying God's word and they're not growing in God's word and they're not coming up to maturity. And as a person, when you see that, you need to come alongside them and help them become more like Christ. Rather than abandoning them or saying, I can't work with them. Let us pray that we may cultivate the qualities that help us preserve unity. And that's the second heading. And by the way, this is all review. Verse 3. This is where we come to the third heading. And this is our heading for today. So if you look into your bulletin, it's there. And that is, Let us be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Now it means, let's, let's read verse 3, because let's put it in perspective. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. When you say eager to maintain, it means make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. The Greek word for eager to maintain is the Greek word spodazo. It means make haste, be zealous, give due diligence. It calls for a strong commitment. And when you think of a strong commitment, it implies a deliberate effort. You are putting everything you have into doing something. Something about that verb, spodazo, is that it is in the present tense and it's in the active voice. So when you say present tense, that means we are to continually be doing it. And it's an active voice, that means not somebody else, you yourself are to be doing it. So if we were to translate it, it would say, it would say we are to be active continually in preserving the unity of the Spirit, how? In the bond of peace. 
That means we are not allowed disunity to fester. Unity is important. Unity is like fire. It tends to die out if unattended. I mean, if you allow disunity to fester, then we are showing by our actions that we are separated or alienated from God. We are showing that we are not at one among ourselves. Because according to this verse, as soon as there is the slightest sense of disunity, as soon as there's the slightest sense of strife, we are to pursue it. You and I are to pursue it. And oftentimes, as I said earlier, unity comes, disunity arises, problem arises because we brood over our disagreements. You've seen the ice cream churners? And you churn it, and you churn it, and you churn it. It's like a DVD player. It's got pause, shuffle, play, repeat. And what we do is we push the repeat button... And we take those disagreements and start churning it in our minds. So it's playing over and over and over again. And what will happen when you do this? Satan will come along and take those or turn those disagreements into strife and contention and rage and fuming and bitterness. Now, don't give in to this false idea that once you have strife and contention, rage, fuming, and bitterness, that it can be pacified. No, my beloved. It'll be like a fire. And the church will be destroyed. Unless you repent of it and turn away from it and strive to preserve the unity. And many church have been destroyed because of this. And we got to be careful about that. If I am responsible for brooding over disagreements and playing it with the repeat button in the DVD player, Anytime there's a strife, I'm going to become more angry. And it's going to turn into contention and quarrel and bitterness. And the church will be destroyed. And the Bible is very clear on that. The Bible says, this is God's temple. And if you destroy God's temple, God will destroy you. And if I'm responsible for that, God will destroy me. That applies to each one of us as well. And this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 14, verse 19. 
He says, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. You and I cannot create unity. All that you and I can do is maintain the unity, guard the unity, preserve the unity. And now the Apostle Paul continues in chapter 4, verse 3 of Ephesians. He says, Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. How? In the bond of peace. Now, peace is characteristics or is the characteristic that keeps us together. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, He says, Blessed are the peacemakers, right? What happens to them? They shall be called sons of God. God is a source of peace. God is the author of peace. Peace belongs to God. Um, we can only preserve peace in the bond of peace. That is, if we have enjoyed peace with God. Only if we have known God can we be peacemakers. Only then there will be harmonious relationship between each other, between one another. And that's why true, genuine conversion leads to unity in the bond of peace. We ought to be a peacemaker. But as only real genuine conversion can we become a peacemaker. That means you and I need to be saved. You and I need to be saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Otherwise there can never be true peace. Well, it doesn't mean that you could be saved. We have fine example in the scriptures between Paul and Barnabas. Wonderful godly men. But they disagreed over Mark. And what happened as a result? They parted ways. They couldn't do ministry together. It was not appreciated. It's not good. I mean, we don't know the consequences because we don't see the consequences right now. God alone knew the consequences of that. We are to be peacemakers in the church. Now, there's a problem that arises. Anytime when we think about and, and, and we, we, you know, you talk about husband and wife relationship. Is everything okay with you? Is everything well with you? Yes, everything is well. You go talk to congregation, you talk to members. Is everything okay with you? Yeah, everything is well. I want to take you to a verse in the Bible that will put things in perspective for us. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 13. Verse 10. Ezekiel chapter 13, verse 10 and 11. Precisely because they have misled my people, saying, Peace, when there is no peace. And because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. Say to those who smear it with whitewash, that it shall fall. So in other words, here is a, the prophet Ezekiel warning those individuals, don't merely plaster over cracked walls. Don't just put a putty, just put a putty on the, the crack, because you may put a putty over the crack and you may whitewash it, but what happens when the rain falls? The wall will crumble. So here is a person who is basically saying there is peace when there is no peace. 
Another place you can go to is Jeremiah, the previous book in the Bible before Ezekiel. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 14. Again, the same principle. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. So this is what God wants us to do. Be real honest with ourselves. Don't say peace, peace, when there is no peace. Don't pretend to say things are okay when things are not okay. Don't act as if everything is fine when everything is not fine. Don't put a putty over the crack. Kent Hughes, one commentator, writes, May God help us to be honest because the stakes are high. And what is the stake? The future of the church. Let us commit to preserving the unity in this church. This is God's church. And let us be ambassadors in preserving the unity in the church. And by the way, it all begins at home. If there is no unity between the husband and wife, that's going to come down to the church as well. Because they are part of the large body of Christ. Now we come to the last heading in verses 4 through 6 of chapter 4. We must be established on the biblical basis for unity. Let's read verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. If you see the structure of verses 4, 5, and 6, the, there are three words in, in verse 4. One body, one spirit, one hope. That belongs to the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. If you look at verse 5, there are three in verse 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Again, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. And then you come down to verse 6, you have one God, the Father of all, referring to the God, the Holy Father, God, the Father, the first person of the Trinity. So in fact, you have a Trinitarian aspect here in verses 4 through 6. The Trinity is involved in bringing unity. That's the foundation for unity. As someone said, Christian unity isn't sharing a cup of coffee and discussing football scores. Rather, it's found in the common relationship within the triune God. That's the foundation. That's the basis. So Paul begins with the phrase in verse 4, there is one body. Do you see that? One body. Unity is possible because we are one body. 
We belong to the one body, and that one body is a church. Therefore, you see again, doctrine is important to right living. We need to understand the doctrine of the church in order to apply the principle of unity. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27, we read, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. When you think about the body of Christ, I want to help you understand the doctrine of the church. There is the invisible church, the, the large church, a church which is when you become a believer, you become a member of that invisible church. You can't see that church. It's a church which consists of only genuine believers. You don't, you're not enrolled. You basically become, you're born into that church when you become a believer. That's the universal church. Or the invisible church. You can't see it. But there is also the visible church. Also known as a local church. And there are local church in geographical areas. I mean, if you look at zip code 92253, you may have other local churches. The local church is a place where once you become a member of the universal church, you find a local church. Now again, it's important that you find a Bible-believing church where the Bible is being taught. So you find a, a local church, a Bible-believing church, and you join that church, that's a tangible expression of the fact that you are a member of the universal church. That means anytime you become a member of the universal church, or become, when you're part of the universal church, you need to find a local church and be a part of the local church. Now keep in mind, when it comes to the local church, there may be should be all believers, but there could be unbelievers as well that become a part, a member of the local church. Now, when you think about the local church, we find that there could be divisions in the local church. And we got to pursue unity in the local church. And we see that because when Paul was writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 31, you find that he had received a letter from the household of Chloe, and she was complaining, and they were letting Paul know that there are divisions in the church. Some were saying that they belong to Paul, the others were saying that they belong to Cephas, the others were saying that they belong to Apollos, and there were division in the church. And so Paul comes along in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and he uses the illustration as the parts of the body. He says, as the parts of the body, there is the eye, there is the hand, there is a foot, there is the ear. To teach the Corinthians that we do not all look alike. We may not act alike. We may not do the same things. There is room for differing gifts. There's room for differing skills. There's room for different personalities. And when you think about 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is making a point that there is diversity, yet there is unity. Think about this. 
If the whole body, the human body, were just the foot, would it become a body? If the whole body, the human body, were just the hand and the foot, would it be called a body? No. The human body consists of your head, your ears, your nose, your fingers, your hands, your toes, your legs. That makes it the human body. So what makes the body a body is that all parts are in one organic unity. It's okay. That's amazing. We have uh, these days that uh, we, can, we can listen to scriptures even while we are driving and uh, do all of those things. But that again shows that as a local body, we have so many benefits today that we can come together and, and learn the truth of God's word. So there is the body, diverse yet one. One organic unity, absolutely interdependent upon each other. No part of the body can say, well, I don't need you, hand. I don't need you, leg. I don't need you, nose. Every part of the body is important. In the same way, every member in this church is important. Everyone matters in this church. There is no important member in this church. We are all important members. You want to know if you're not important? Just not, don't come to church next Sunday. And what will happen? I'll be standing here and preaching where? To empty chairs. You are important as you come to church. And as members, diverse members, we are working together harmoniously for the glory of God. Colossians chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, we read, Above all these things put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. So the basis of unity is love. You and I cannot divorce ourselves from other members of this body. You cannot say, well, so-and-so member is prideful, and so-and-so member is slow, and so-and-so member is acting different, and so-and-so member is not that organized as I am, and so-and-so member is not as skilled as I am, and so I'm just not going to have those members play any role in what I'm doing. But sometimes we do that. You may be skilled in a certain area of work, and you like only people with those skills help you out. Otherwise, what happens? You're not able to do that good job, so you say people, you know, you're not that skilled, so you just stay away, and I'll just work with the people that I like. I've been a teacher for over a decade, and I used to give projects in my class. And as I give them projects, I divide the class up into 
groups of four or five. And each group will have, should have about four students or five students, depending on what they've been assigned to. So one student will be assigned as the project coordinator. Another one will be assigned as a research coordinator. Another one will be the timekeeper. Another one will be the spokesperson. And another one will be the data collector. And you know, guess what happens? In order to teach them collaboration, I tell them to get in their groups. And immediately, they find their groups. And usually, you will have one or two left out. And they'll be kind of scrambling from group to group, trying to put themselves in, but no one really takes them. Have you seen that? And 95% of the time, as I go and talk to them, to teach them life skills and collaboration, I talk to them, say, why did you get into this group? Well, they'll say, well, we work well together. Have you heard that? We work well. Or if so-and-so person comes in, our grades will go down. You probably heard that as parents, right? Or if so-and-so person comes, we will end up doing all the work because so-and-so is lazy. And so they find themselves getting into this group where they think that they will work together based on criteria that they have established. Does that happen in the church as well? That you could take a project on hand and you could find your own group that you work well with and finish the project to the exclusion of the others who really want to be a part of that? Is that unity in the body? No. Let's come to the next phrase here in chapter 4, verse 4. So there's one body, one spirit. What makes the body unified? It is the one spirit. The church is a result of the activity of the Holy Spirit. Now, who is the Holy Spirit? If you were to look at the King James, you probably think the Holy Spirit is some ghost. No. The Holy Spirit is the very person, the duplicate of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, if you read John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, and I'll read it for you. It says, I'll ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth from the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You see the personal pronoun, Him, to explain the Holy Spirit? It says, you know Him. Personal pronoun. For He dwells with you. Personal pronoun, you. And will be in you. So He is the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit is the one who is doing the work in the life of all believers. What's the ministry of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit brings about conviction of sin. Works does the work of regeneration in the person's life. Before you and I can become a member of the local body of Christ the visible body, you need to have conviction of sin. The Holy Spirit does that. The Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, helps you understand who you are in the light of the holiness of God. 
And as you begin to understand who you are in the light of God's holiness, as you come face to face with the holy God, we sang the song, Holy, Holy, Holy. You understand who you are in the face of a holy God. It causes us to come face to face with our sin. And as we recognize our sin, we cry out to God for mercy. And as we cry out to God for mercy, the Holy Spirit regenerates us. It gives us faith. We elect to repentance by the grace of God. He opens our eyes to the truth of the gospel. He causes us to be born again. And He seals us with the promised Holy Spirit. We are adopted into His kingdom. And as we are adopted into His kingdom, we are now incorporated into the body of Christ. Who does all this? The Holy Spirit. It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells us, the Holy Spirit controls us, the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. Kent Hughes writes, The Holy Spirit creates, the Holy Spirit fills, coordinates, orchestrates, and empowers the body of Christ. Christianity is not a club to join. True Christianity is a spiritual relationship with Christ as well as other believers. Through the Spirit. We are being united into one body. Let's come to the next term. That's found in verse 4. It says, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. The one hope. So the Holy Spirit calls us. He regenerates us. He gives us new life. He baptizes us into the body of Christ continues to perfect us each day, so that one day we will be in the presence of Christ in ultimate glory. That's the hope of our calling. See that? That means as we are being sanctified, we are being prepared so that for that one day when we will be in His presence. Take you through a few references to understand this. Romans chapter 8 Verse 18 reads, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That means one day the glory of Christ will be revealed to us. We read in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. And I'll read verse 18 for you, that having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, the glorious inheritance that we have in Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14 says that again. It says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the price of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We are waiting for that day when we will be transformed into His presence. First John chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Beloved, we are children, God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared, but we do know when He will appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. That's the future aspect of our salvation. 
We'll be changed totally to be like Christ and we'll share in His glory. That's the hope of our calling. Now let's come back to verse 5. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5. We looked at verse 4, now verse 5. It says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now we are transitioning from the Holy Spirit to the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, one Lord. That means Jesus Christ is our Lord. And when you're gazing upon Christ, you need to recognize that Jesus Christ is 100% God and 100% man. He is in the image of God. He is the exact iconic image of God. He is the exact imprint of God. Hebrews talks about it. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 says that. It says, though he was in the form of God. That means he was the exact imprint of God. Jesus Christ is God. It says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He incarnated, became man. And in Christ, in that one Lord, you and I have unity. Say how? Well, he brought you with a price. He ransomed you. He redeemed you. He owns you. He loves you. He cares for you. The Lord Jesus protects you. He's our deliverer. He's our ruler. And so in Christ Jesus, we are one. Now, keep in mind, it says there is one Lord. So if there is one Lord, and if we are in Christ, it says one Lord cannot be divided. He is one God, one Lord. And if He cannot be divided, you and I, when we become in that one Lord, you and I cannot be divided either. We are one in Lord. This is why Paul asked the question in 1 Corinthians. He says, is Christ divided? No. Because the church was doing it. There were one people, there some people saying we belong to Cephas, another one saying we belong to Paul, another saying we belong to Apollos. And so he says, why are you aligning yourselves with people? Is Christ divided? No. There is one Lord. One Lord also means there is no other means of salvation apart from Him. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, There is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. That's one Lord. That shows there cannot be true unity in any other church which refuses the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. For true unity to exist, there has to be this one common thread running across that Jesus Christ is Lord. And unless and until you recognize that, there cannot be true unity. Even amongst people in the same church. Let's move on. The next phrase says, one faith. Paul is not referring here to the act of faith that saves or justifies. He's talking about the body of faith, the gospel. Jude 3 mentions that, the faith that was once and for revealed to all the saints. It's the content of the revealed word of God, the gospel that saved you, one faith. So there's unity as long as you abide by this one faith. Next, we come to the phrase, 
one baptism. At the end of verse 5. So when you think about one baptism, there are some people who teach this, this refers to baptismal regeneration. No, it doesn't. When you think about baptismal regeneration, this is what baptismal regeneration teaches, that you are saved as a result of baptism. No, you are not saved as a result of baptism. You get baptized because you're saved. Another verse in the Bible that talks about uh, baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and they twist that, that because you're baptized, your sins are forgiven. No, your sins are forgiven because of that you get baptized. There are others who teach that this refers to baptism of the Spirit. Something that happens to you after you get saved. No. It doesn't talk about the baptism of the Spirit. There's only one baptism that happens at the point of your conversion when you are baptized by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, we read, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free. All were made to drink of that one Spirit. Then there are others who teach that it refers to the more of baptism. Because there are some churches that baptize by baptize infants, by sprinkling. We here baptize by immersion. We believe that those who have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, repented of their sins, get baptized. We believe in believers' baptism. We will not know about the correct mode of baptism until we see Christ face to face. And then we will know that we were right all these years. So what what is Paul trying to tell here? What is he trying to say? Is he trying to say that this refers to this, this, this? What is one baptism? Well, I want us to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 1 and 2. We read here that I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate of the same spiritual food. Meaning that when they crossed the Red Sea, they came out of the domain of Egypt. They were no longer under the reign of Pharaoh. Pharaoh was no longer their king. They came out of that land, and now they have a new domain. They are under the leadership of Moses. And it says they were all baptized into Moses, and they ate of the same spiritual food, and the same spiritual drink, and the same spiritual rock, and the rock was Christ. So there is a transfer of rain from the domain of Egypt to the domain of Christ. That's baptism. If you turn with me to another passage in 1 Corinthians chapter, um, I mean, sorry, Romans chapter 6. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. It says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So here we see that there is a transfer. We were dead in our sins, but now we are resurrected and we are alive with Jesus Christ. We walk in the newness of life. 
So when we think about one baptism, we are thinking about that water baptism. We are being transferred from one domain to another domain. We are transferred from one way of life to another way of life. And this baptism is in unity with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That is one baptism. Now having looked at one baptism, let's move on. And let's come to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6, and let's get to the finish line here. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6. One God, one Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. This is the climax of the entire section in verses 1 through and 6. 1 through 6. Paul is appealing to the Ephesian church here to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Why? Because ultimately, we are thinking about that ultimate end where God gets all the glory. One God, the Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. The prime reason why Christ came into this world to die for us is to bring us to God the Father. God gets all the glory. As we become part of this church, this church is known as a church of God. God gets all the glory. So as we come to God, in God, there can be no disunity. There is no disunity in heaven. Because when you see in heaven, when you look up to the heavens, you find all the angels looking up to God and worshipping Him day in and day out. In harmony with each other. No angels are saying, well, we are not going to worship God this way. We are going to worship God this way. We are not going to worship God here in this place. Instead, we'll be worshiping there. They are all worshiping God, the same Father. In the same way, when we become part of the member, the body of Christ, the church, belongs to God the Father, we all are to be harmoniously working together, sharing the same love with one another with all believers, because we are brothers, sisters, children of the Most High God. It's interesting how he wraps it up. He says, One God and Father of all, who is over all, that shows sovereignty, is sovereign. Through all, shows us power, is all-powerful, and in all, that shows his omniscience. God is present everywhere. He is all present. That's the basis of our unity. The Trinity. The Trinitarian work is the basis of our unity. We saw two things today. Two headings. One, let's strive to keep the unity. Two, let us understand the foundation or the biblical basis of our unity and that's based in the Trinity. The Trinity is at work to create unity amongst us. How? One Spirit, one Lord, one God. In closing, I want to read what Brian Chapel wrote in his commentary. When I look at a brother whom I believe is wrong in his perspective or has wronged me, I must look behind the eyes of one who has hurt me or is angry with me because he believes the offense is mine 
and I must see Jesus indwelling in him. This is a person for whom Christ died and in whom the Son of God lives. My brother in Christ, you can put sister as well, is infinitely valuable to God. And therefore, I must honor him with regard from my heart. With the words of my mouth and with the works of my hands. Each of us for whom Christ died is called to love beyond all differences of race or cults or class or perspective or personality. I'm called to say to all those in Christ Jesus, you're my brother, you're my sister. We have the same father. Come, let us love one another beyond our differences, for we have the same identity. Amen. Father, we thank you for the privilege you give us, Lord, to study your word. Help us, Father, to be men and women that will put this into practice. That we will be living with that understanding that you died for us on the cross. That we are all one, one united because we have the same identity. And thank you, Lord, for that saving work you've done in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's children say, Amen.